Welcome to episode 116 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Dan Riley, who served in the FBI for 30 years six as a photographer and technician in the FBI laboratory and 24 as a special agent. In this episode, Dan Riley reviews the case of a con man and rare document thief, Charles Merle Mount, a celebrated portrait artist and art historian who stole hundreds of historical manuscripts from the National Archives and the Library of Congress, including Civil War documents and three letters written by Abraham Lincoln. During his career, Dan Riley worked a variety of criminal cases, including interstate transportation of stolen property, property crimes, and he helped start the FBI's Safe Streets Task Force program investigating violent drug gangs. Dan Riley led the Evidence Response Team, ERT, at the Washington Field Office and provided extensive experience and training to others on crime scene examinations. After his retirement from the FBI, Dan Riley worked as a private consulting analyst with the High Density Drug Trafficking Area, HIDA, Task Force Operations in the Mid-Atlantic Region. Dan Riley is currently an adjunct faculty member at George Mason University in the Criminology, Law, and Society Department. He is in the process of writing his second textbook. And yes, we did speak to Dan Riley before episode 77. And during the interview, you'll hear about the rewarding results of Dan doing that episode. But before we get to it, I just want to remind you that the summer is coming. The summer is a great time to listen to podcasts, you know, while you're at the beach or on that road trip or just doing lawn work. But it's also a busy time. So I want to make sure I get all of my interviews recorded and on the shelf ready to go. So if you're a retired agent or you know a retired agent, let them know that I'm actively looking for people so that I can be ahead of the schedule and I can spend more time with my brand new grandson who will be coming at the end of June. I also want to make sure I invite you to join my reader team where once a month I email a digest of the previous month's podcast episodes, my crime fiction recommendations, and I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV and movies. To join my reader team, all you need to do is go to jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop up. If you'd like to take a look at what type of emails I send out, while you're on my website, just go to Jerry Williams backslash newsletters. You'll see some of my previous emails there. Please stick around at the end of the interview. I want to talk to you about Greedy Givers, my new book that will be released on June 28th. So thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to invite back again, Dan Riley. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, we're going to be talking today about one of the largest rare document thefts in history. And for those who have heard your previous episode, episode 77, they're probably scratching their head and saying, what? A document theft? (laughs) Well, Jerry, you know, just 
uh, as a result of my early years in, in the FBI, I was working mostly stolen property cases. And because of my relationship with all the police that I had throughout those cases, I rolled naturally into violent crimes cases because of uh, priorities and all that kind of thing that changed from you know the early 80s all the way through uh, the late 80s when you know especially in DC when the violence got so bad but before you know that all sort of spiked in DC property crimes was not like even a big deal at Washington field office uh, in the I think it was 1984 that we established jurisdiction over uh, drug cases, and so uh, I was, myself and one other guy were the only two guys at Washington Field Office working stolen property matters. So I did a little bit of con man type work, and, you know, but it was mostly involving property because WFO's priorities at the time were drugs and uh, some international terrorism and white-collar crime. I mean, we had actually two, uh, at least two squads that I remember that worked white-collar crime, including uh, one that worked mostly con-man-type stuff. But uh, if, the prop- if the property that they stole was kind of straightforward government property or, you know, something valuable that had been transported in interstate commerce, a lot of times those cases got assigned to me. So I had a, I had a large caseload back in uh, the mid-'80s, and one of them turned out to be this case with Charles Merrill Mount. So... That's and, and after I did that case and a couple of others, uh, I ended up rolling into uh, street gang investigations, primarily because the cops that I was working with had to start spending more time on violent crimes. So that's kind of how it happened, <laughs> the evolution of it, if you want to get to it. Uh, I, I certainly was wondering, but we had talked about this case, you know, at the end of our last interview while we were while we were chatting, and uh, because I worked mostly fraud and condom uh, cases during my career, I was fascinated and wanted to get back with you. So thank you for agreeing to, to do the show again. That's no problem at all. Glad to help. But before we get into that, Kate, we, we have a, a few things that we should update the listeners about because your previous interview, which is episode 77, and I named it Hitman Wayne Silk Perry, Witness retaliation. It has gone viral. I mean, everybody is listening to our, you know, this show, except for the fact it's not on my site. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're ripping you off, Jerry. What can I say? <laughs> they're ripping me off. So I found out I had gotten a couple of emails or tweets or, you know, whatever from, from different people saying, are you aware that your show, you know, that your podcast episode has been stolen, but no one ever told me where, who stole it or where it was posted, and then finally, I found it by accident. I was just on YouTube looking up something for a case that I was going to be, uh, you know, reviewing on on the show, and all of a sudden, your face popped up. (laughs) I'm sorry about that, Jerry. So the photo that I had on my show notes for this show is now on a video on YouTube. And as of today, that new video that they recreated by stealing my episode and posting posting it on YouTube now has 205 
thousand views. You are famous. I guess. <laughs> it's kind of fun- shocking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the funny thing is, on my site, on on um, you know, I I use Listen as my podcast hosting service, and they tell me how many times each episode's been downloaded. And on my site, your episode's been downloaded a little over twenty thousand times. So the episode version on YouTube has been viewed ten times more than the episode has you know, on, on my site. What's interesting, Jerry, is that I got notified about it from a um, an analyst that works at Washington Field Office who came across it during, you know, some of her work. And she just, you know, she knew me back when I was uh, working at the field office and called me up and asked me if I knew I was on YouTube. <laughs> and I went, well, no, I mean, there's a podcast out there. And she goes, no, no, you're on YouTube. So she's the one that told me where to go to find it, and that's how I found it. So it was like, and then I think I notified you after after a couple of days. But I also got a, a phone, not a phone call, but an email uh, as a result of my contact uh, information at, at George Mason University from the uh, from the son of one of my confidential sources. And, of course, he was like a young boy uh, sitting in the back of the car, when I was meeting with his dad, going over important information about which uh, murderers we needed to, to to go after, and and the, his father was very important in providing you know high class intelligence to us throughout the whole time period that we were involved in the Perry case and other of our uh, major gang cases. So you know it was kind of a good thing to get in touch with him and see how he was doing and explain to the extent that I could. Uh, how much his father meant to us and, and to the work we were doing. And I, I think it gave him a sense of, of pride a little bit. At least I hope it did. But, you know, he's working uh, in close area around us and, uh, you know, has grown to be a fine man. So, you know, it, it's a, it all comes down to that. It all comes down to if what we did was helpful to the community, then, you know, I feel good about the work that we did at the time. Yeah, and we both were contacted by another person who listened to the episode on YouTube, but who contacted me on my website, and I believe contacted you, and she's the daughter of one of the victims of Wayne Perry. Yeah, she. Uh, in, I, I had also gotten an email from uh, not only the daughter, but a, a niece, and they, and they both told me in their emails that the family just didn't have a whole lot of information about you know, the victim's murder, and would I be willing to talk to him? And, of course, I've told them that I would be. You know, I guess they're in the decision-making process whether they really want to talk some more, so I'm waiting to hear from them. But, again, it's a matter of that particular victim was one of the heroes of the whole uh, investigation. I mean, she was killed simply because she had seen the murder of one of her friends and decided that she needed to testify about the truthfulness of that case. And, you know, Perry, in his manner decided that, you know, that was not a good idea, and he killed her because of it. So, it, you know, it's it's that violence that was going on in that particular time period that was so destructive to the community, but at least there were heroes like, like that young woman that were willing to stand up to him. So, you know, again, it's it's difficult, it's hard. Uh, I think for the people in, in, in her family, I think it's hard for them to, 
say, well, you know, if she would have kept her mouth shut, maybe nothing bad would have happened to her. Well, of course, we don't know that. But, we, you know, it did happen, and it happened because she was willing to, you know, to put her life on the line. So that's what a hero is, in my opinion. And so I, I feel bad for the family, and I, you know, really hope that they get some sense of uh, justice out of it. That was the case that sort of led us to going after him to begin with. And so, therefore, it happened, you know, before we got involved. And so the responsibility of it is strictly Wayne Paris, not anybody else. Uh, he, he, you know, he killed her, and he made the decision to remove her from his life. And that was that was the type of person he was. Yeah, and, and those two people reaching out to you makes me feel good that my intellectual property, my copyrighted episode audio, you know, was put on uh, on YouTube. And I will say, just to, to, to bring this to uh, this whole incident uh, to full circle, I did reach out to the person who took my uh, copyrighted property and, and put it on YouTube, and and then we actually spoke. And uh, you know, I could have threatened to sue him and get a lawyer and take it down. And, you know, it really is um, not worth the trouble, to tell you the truth. Uh, People are getting to hear the story. They're getting to hear about the courageous work that you and the other members of the Safe Street Task Force did back in Washington, D.C. so long ago that's made it a much safer place. And it's an audience that I probably would have never reached And so I look at it as a good thing. Uh, The person has a huge audience, a huge platform. He promised me to introduce, you know, my show to more people. That hasn't happened. I doubt if it ever will happen. But, you know, there's always good things that come out of things that you weren't expecting. And the fact that these two young people one, the son of an informant, one, the daughter of a victim, makes me feel good. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I think you're right. I mean, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable knowing uh, that there's people out there that that are uh, taking, you know, the work we did and sort of uh, altering it a little bit in their own understanding of life. Uh, I noticed that on that YouTube thing that they didn't, completely uh, uh, use your your the end of your podcast and I think that's unfortunate because it it doesn't show the commitment that our office had and the people that lost their lives from our office so you know it, it's it seemed to you know they were reacting mostly to you know one item that I said about Wayne's personality that really had nothing to do with you know whether he was a good person or a bad person had to do with you know the fact that he was a violent predator who, who, you know, terrorized the city. And, you know, it's unfortunate that people think of, think of that way and almost they want to, to turn him into a hero. So that, that kind of attitude, you know, made me feel bad uh, about the way it was posted. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right. There are probably a lot of people that this story's never occurred to them, and, and now they know about it. A lot of people that would have never, would have never heard about it. Other than yeah, through that. and it is, yeah, it, it is unfortunate that they didn't listen to the completed interview because mm. the end of that interview, 
and I told you this, uh, you know, offline, is one of my favorites. And I'm not supposed to have favorites. Or I'm not supposed to tell everybody, but it got so deep and so emotional and so real that I just really admired your honesty and your transparency. And this audience isn't the audience who was listening on YouTube didn't get to hear any of that. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. No, that's it. But, you know, that's the way life is sometimes, and uh, hopefully they'll take it for what it's worth. And, uh, you know, we can only do what we can do. And, it, you know, what's interesting about it is this whole thing occurred over 20 years ago, and there's still apparently a lot of interest. <laughs> apparently. And so anyone who's listening to this episode, if you haven't heard Dan Riley do the case review of Wayne Perry, who was known as the Michael Jordan of murder, then please, after you listen to this, go back and listen to episode 77. You will not regret it. So now we're moving on. (laughs) We're we're going from, from, you know, I don't know if you call it the sublime to the ridiculous, but we're going at opposite ends of investigative interest. (laughs) Absolutely. So... Tell us a little bit about this uh, this new character uh, that you also uh, had the opportunity to investigate, and his name is Charles Merrill Mott. Or is his name Charles Merrill Mott? No, his real name was actually Sherman Suchow, and he was born in Brooklyn, New York, of all places. And uh, uh, when he was 18 or 19 years old, he was identified as one of the great portrait artists in the United States and received a, a Guggenheim a scholarship for art. He was asked to do the official portrait of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis when she was a first lady, and he did the official portrait of James O. Eastland, who was a senator from Mississippi. Something happened to him in his 20s. And when I mean something, it's kind of unclear, but it might have been like a stroke or something, you know, that sort of ended up physically debilitating him a little bit and lessened his his prowess as an artist. He then turned his attention to doing art history uh, research. Now, what was also uh, unusual about him is he had an IQ of about 190. I mean, he was unbelievably he was unbelievably intelligent. And um, just, you know, was had, had an amazing mind. But he believed that if he was a little shady here and there, that society kind of owed him that because he, had, he, had, he was such a talent. And so over the years before I even came in contact with him, he had, um, you know, minor scrapes with the law. But one of those scrapes happened to be when... It, he and his mother got into a problem in Brooklyn, and he actually threatened to kill her. So he was charged with extortion by the FBI in New York, you know, threats threats of violence. And I think they actually convicted him of that up in New York. So he had a... Now, uh, now, now why, was, why was that an FBI case? Well, it was, you know, I think uh, the, uh, his mother was a, a fairly well-off person, and she had a lawyer that was called in on the threats and 
the lawyer called the FBI saying it was an interstate threat of some sort. Um, and so I think at that point, extortion cases, you know, I actually worked those early in my career. And uh, if if you uh, transported a threat in interstate commerce uh, of some sort, like over the telephone or by mail, uh, you could be charged with extortion. As long as you threat, you know, it was an actual threat of violence. And so as I understood it, you know, that was like the first felony conviction for the guy. Because normally, I just want to be clear to uh, to everybody listening, that normally something like that would be handled by the local police. Right. Uh, and the only thing I can say is uh, maybe it was because they were wealthy and they had the ear of somebody important in New York. I can't tell you. I don't really know any of the ins and outs of it. And, of course, this would have been back in the you know 70s that it happened, or even earlier than that. So... Um, the only thing I knew is when we were investigating investigating him, he had a, a conviction, a felony conviction. Anyway, the, uh, the bottom line is, is I had worked a series of stolen property cases, including a few uh, cases involving art theft. So I was, you know, for, for a lot of reasons that I can't explain, I was like the expert on anything to do with art theft. And so I got a call from the Boston FBI uh, that they wanted me to get a search warrant on this guy's, you know, uh, residence, which turned out to be a one-room apartment on Capitol Hill in a townhouse. But um, when I went through the whole uh, case with the case agent, uh, who was Special Agent uh, Steve Morrill, he told me that at his end, uh, a woman in Good- Goodspeed's bookstore in Boston named Cheryl Rochford uh, had called him up and told him that uh, that this guy Mount had delivered to her a, a series of manuscripts from an artist by the name of Whistler. I don't know if your audience is familiar with the art world, but Whistler's mother, I guess, is a famous painting, and I, I can't remember Whistler's full name. I think it was John McNeil Whistler or something like that. Anyway, uh, he had a bunch of manuscripts, handwritten, you know, documents from Whistler, and he sold them to Goodspeed's bookstore, along with some other uh, miscellaneous uh, documents. I think a, a Rodin, August Rodin uh, document or two, and uh, Goodspeed had paid him for it and thought nothing of it because these items, you know, as far as she was concerned, Miss Roachford, they weren't owned by anybody else. She didn't know who, you know, uh, why he wouldn't have these things legitimately. So she made the purchase. But then he offered to sell her a letter from Abraham Lincoln, which she was very familiar with. And that letter was a document that had been reviewed at the National Archives by uh, a historian on U.S. Grant and had written a book explaining where the document was. Well, Miss Roachford knew the document, knew the book that was written, and she called the FBI. She you know, reported it as a theft of property from the uh, National Archives, U.S. National Archives. So that's what Steve picked up, and he ran a sort of a short-term undercover operation where he was going to be in good speeds uh, when Mount showed up with the Abraham Lincoln letter and arrest him. And so all he wanted at my end was that I conduct a search warrant at Mount's residence, which... Uh, we were able to do, you know, kind of ended up surprising me a little bit. 
I was still kind of a new agent at the time and was unclear about what probable cause meant. I thought I needed more than what I had, but the judge determined based on the information that I gave him about Mount's access to the original Abraham Lincoln document and his access to the to the Whistler letters that apparently were stolen out of the Library of Congress, that he was willing to give me a search warrant for the guy's residence. When what we was went, that access? Uh, he was a researcher and had a research carol, C-A-R-E-L, at the Library of Congress, and he was given a researcher's identification for the National Archives. So in other words, they approved him as the type of researcher that could review and go over any of the original documents for anybody he was ha- happened to be writing uh, writing his research uh, work on. Mount, for his part, had written three uh, very, very important art history books. He is really actually the single most important chronicler of the artist John Singer Sargent. He wrote a, a fairly well-received historical record of Claude Monet's work, and I think his last book wasn't so well-received, but it was uh, on the work of Gilbert Stewart. I don't know if you're familiar with the famous George Washington portrait uh, done by uh, Gilbert Stewart, but that was part of his, you know, of of Mount's sort of bona fides when he uh, presented himself to the Library of Congress and to the National Archives and told them that he needed to do research in their records. And that just gave him the access he needed to actually steal the documents. He was also supported um, when he got his research, uh, Carol. Uh, he, he was supported by the Kennedy family because they'd known he'd done Jacqueline Onassis's uh, portrait. So he had some political pull, in other words, and was given you know whatever uh, they could do for him there at both the archives and and at the uh, at the Library of Congress. You know, by getting that access, he could order up whatever, you know, original documents they had in their possession, either the Library of Congress or the National Archives, and he could rummage through them and, you know, act like he was writing and taking notes. And meanwhile, he was probably folding a document up here and a document up there and sticking it in his pockets and walking out the door with them. So with that information uh, about his access, the judge issued the warrant for his house. I went into his house with a couple of friends of mine, detectives from the 1st District, which covers that area, and uh, we did a search warrant. The first thing that hit me when I walked into the door was there was a uh, a painting of the lilies by Monet, unframed, sitting in the corner of this room. I looked at the painting and I thought, well, there's a couple of million dollars sitting right there. What the heck is it doing here? Well... (laughs) It occurred to me that it might have been something that Mount did because we found out uh, subsequent to that that uh, he also uh, was involved in what people believed was a, a series of of counterfeit, you know, artwork. Uh, and was that was that counterfeit? That was definitely counterfeit. However, okay. here's what the problem was: if he would have sold it as a as an original Monet, he's one of the experts on Monet. So he could tell somebody, listen, you know, somebody else may tell you that this is not an original Monet, but I'm telling you it is, and I'm one of the worldwide experts on Monet. So he could authenticate his own forgery. Exactly. 
So, I mean, you know, he was an interesting character. And, and kind of brilliant. Well, I mean, you know, he did have the IQ to, to work a lot of different angles on a lot of different things. Uh, as as we progressed in our investigation, we also found out that he was establishing a um, a provenance for a stolen uh, Stradivarius violin that was stolen out of Philadelphia back in the late 70s, early 80s. So, I mean, you know, he, he got himself involved in a lot of crazy stuff, but when uh when Steve locked him up up in uh in Massachusetts, I, I think that kind of short circuited his career. And and so what we what what I had to do at that particular point was, you know, look through the rest of his house or his residence and we found uh, a bunch of documents that had stamps on them, you know, property of the Library of Congress. But we also found a folder that he was using to bleach out that stamp on the documents. And uh, we were able to turn all of that stuff over to the FBI laboratory. And uh, an agent I knew in the laboratory by the name of Chuck Parada, he examined it all and was able to prove that uh, Mount not only had removed the the labeling property of the uh, uh, Library of Congress from those documents, but he proved that they were able to that Mount had removed the same kind of stamps from the documents that he had sold to Goodspeed's bookstore. So that really pretty much made you know uh, Steve's case for him. We could prove the Abraham Lincoln letter was property of the National Archives. Did everything that you found from him did you find in that room, or did he have? No, no. Uh, what we also found in his room were uh, keys to safe deposit boxes. And I had, I don't know, recently worked another investigation where I sort of knew the way safe deposit box keys look and that sort of thing. So I was kind of on the lookout for it. But I, I had no reason to believe the guy had safe deposit boxes. But um, we ended up uh, getting a search warrant for those safe deposit boxes. And I want to say it was three boxes at two different banks. And that's where I'm a little shaky on my memory. But it turned out we found 400 other documents stolen from the uh, Library of Congress and the National Archives. We also found a gun and a huge bag of Secanol, or Reds, which was a drug that was kind of a, a drug of choice for, for people in the 60s. I don't know that, that anybody was still using it in when we discovered it, but it was an unbelievable cache of, of second all. It was like, I don't know, a thousand pills or something crazy. So we ended up uh, realizing that we had a huge step to government property case to make in D.C., and along with the interstate transportation of stolen property case that, that Steve had in Boston. So we sort of opened up our own Office of Origin investigation on Mount and uh, ended up doing all the interviews that had to be done at the Library of Congress and the National Archives uh, to prove the ownership of pretty much all 400 documents. Wow. Uh, and can I can I ask you to tell us if you know when he was arrested in Boston? Did he have documents with him? Yeah, there he, had the, he had the um, the the letter from Abraham Lincoln that he had told Goodspeed's bookstore about, and he had at least two other documents. Who well, My recollection is they were Civil War-era documents. Uh, so 
uh, among the property, the, the, the property that they charged interstate commerce, the Abraham Lincoln letter alone was probably valued over a hundred thousand uh, wow. dollars. The, the 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 manuscripts from Whistler and from the other art uh, uh, art area uh, people that he had that he had already sold to Goodspeeds, they were in the you know forty or fifty thousand dollar range in terms of value. Uh, I, I want to say he got twenty thousand for it. I don't remember the exact figures, but they were amounts like that that they were talking about. So from Boston's viewpoint, money wise, it was a you know a big huge recovery, but the Lincoln letter was the key uh, because of its you know extreme value. I mean, it, it was handwritten by Abraham Lincoln to to U.S. Grant. I mean, it was like a a note to him saying, you know, I want you to do this or that or the other. I don't really remember all the details, but it was like his orders during the Civil War, like you know, go down and take Richmond or you know whatever whatever he was telling him to do. So, and it sounds like an, an uh, important historical document. It was extremely important, and that's why it had been mentioned in John Simon's book on on U.S. Grant. Now, John Simon, he became critical to us later on in our trial in D.C. Uh, he was the sort of U.S. expert on, on Ulysses S. Grant. And he was a professor out in um, Illinois. And he knew most of the documents that we recovered, like had reviewed them and and commented on almost, I don't know, 60, 70% of them in his books because they were orders about specific uh, battles that had occurred in the, in the Civil War. And one of the other people that we had who testified for us in the trial was a guy named Mike Music, who was an archivist at the U.S. Archives. And, you know, at first blush, he kind of looked like a like like a nerdy guy, you know, that sort of you expect to be an archivist, like a librarian type of person. But he was really kind of an unusual figure. And it turned out he was one of the main providers of information uh, to that um, uh, NPR television uh, show on the Civil War. Uh, you, oh, yeah. are, you know what I'm talking to, about? Yeah. Right. Well, he was like one of the guys that that sort of you know supplied most of the information to that case because he just had an extraordinary amount of knowledge about, you know, the orders that were given to, you know, various units in the military and how the Civil War progressed. So if you can imagine the trial that we had, I mean, the trial in Boston was kind of unique and unusual, but it was a real limited number of of items that we were talking about. So proving the ownership, government ownership of those documents was pretty straightforward and perfunctory. But in our case, we had to sort of prove a water, broader range. So in the case, what we had was Mike Music and uh, Professor Simon, and they came in and just absolutely amazed the jury, telling them about the value of these items. In other words, they were explaining what the, you know, uh, the Battle of the Wilderness was all about, because that's what the documents covered, that whole time period when... And so they were talking like music was unbelievable. He was like providing the the historical narrative of the Battle of the Wilderness, but giving it in such a way that it was it was like I think the jury was amazed. I think they were like I mean I know I was. You know you're just captivated by somebody that has that much information, but is able to tell the story in a kind of a you know offhanded, easygoing. You know this is what the value of these items are.
In other words, they're our history. And both those guys were incredible at laying that out. And I think by the time they ended up testifying, the jury was like, ready to put Mount under the jail. <laughs> I mean, well, let me, let me ask you a question when it comes to that. Why did he even want to go to trial? It sounds like this is a, a, a you know, slam-bam case where he would just go ahead and plead guilty. You have all these documents are of historical value that belong, you know, even though you had to prove each and every one, you know, you, you obviously have proof that they belong, you know, to, that belong to the Library of Congress and the National Archives. So why, why did he want to go to trial? What was that about? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, to be perfectly honest, and I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or, or a psychologist, but Mount was absolutely, the, as far as I could tell, you know, just from definition alone, was the epitome of a sociopath. He had a story that he painted, and you got to understand that in both both trials he was def- he he was an important part of the defense. In the in the trial in D.C. was actually the defense attorney, which was hilarious too. But in in Boston, his defense was. I got the Civil War documents from this priest in Ireland, and I got all of the um, the documents from uh, the art world. I got those from you know during my research in Paris, France. So he had this story, and he never gave up on it. I mean, he continued to tell us about the fact that these things were legitimately his in the face of just enormous evidence. And what was even more, uh, you know, I guess disconcerting, I guess would be the best term I can use to to talk about it, is that after he got out of jail, he came back to D.C., and I had some of his personal property that I had taken in the search warrant, and I was supposed to return it. But he never, you know, appointed anybody for me to return it to, and that was a big issue, you know, when we were prosecuting him. So when he got out of jail... Uh, he demanded to have his personal property returned. And so I went over to his place to see him and told him that, you know, I was ready to return his property, but he had to come to our office to pick it up. And some of the property was works of art written or done by him personally that he had signed. So they were legitimately his. So I said, you know, you can come by and pick up the stuff any time. Well, his response to that was to sue me for $8 million for returning all of his property to him including wow. all the government documents and claiming again that it was, you know, his material, all of the stuff that he had stolen out of the archives. And so, I mean, oh, you know, okay. that was just one of the lawsuits that he filed against me. <laughs> so he didn't want return of just his personal property, but he wanted the return of the stuff that had already been, he'd been convicted of stealing. He wanted that back. Oh, yeah. So I sort of didn't have any control over that. <laughs> Because I'd only returned it to the National Archives and the Library of Congress, but you know, um, it, so luckily the, the Justice Department defended me in that lawsuit. And, and that's the other thing you have to remember about him in, in terms of what you're talking about. I mean, he had an enormous IQ. He would be kept in our cell block down in the basement of the, the courthouse building, and they gave him a typewriter. And when he was acting as his own defense attorney. I'm telling you, Jerry, he would like type 20 or 30 motions every day and deliver them to the judge. Now, the, the, the chief judge at the time, and I think his name was Aubrey Robinson, was just absolutely beside himself trying to deal with this guy. 
because he had to treat him like an attorney. So he had to take all of these motions serious. But there were motions like, I need to have, you know, uh, sugar on my uh, tea in the morning. or so. I, You know, it was crazy. Oh, wow. And, 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 but it was constant. And it was a constant flow of, of uh, you know, motions that he was, you know, spewing out and that Judge Robinson had to deal with. So Judge Robinson was, like, just beside himself, angry at the guy. Well, nobody, you know, believed him. Everybody knew he was a thief. But he just continued to, you know, play the game. So you, you probably know more about con men than I do, but, you know, one of the things that I knew about them was they, you never could get them to tell the truth, no matter what. Yeah, they love to lie. And that's that, that's that sociopathic behavior. Yeah. Well, when he was tried in Boston, did he have a real defense attorney? Yes, he had a real one in, in Boston. Who was an first one? That was his, that was his first one, but he could never. Uh, he didn't like that guy much. <laughs> I mean, he he sort of lived with it up there in Boston, and then he was uh, he, the defense attorney that he had assigned to him in D.C. was another sort of a interesting person, who uh, and I can't remember his name, but his payment, okay, for his work was that Monet I was telling you about. Oh, the fake one. Yeah. But we had to, you know, we that was his his fee. It's because he kept telling Mount that if he could, you know, uh, legitimately get that Monet, he would do legal work for him. So Mount went ahead, went along with it, and you know, I ended up having to write all sorts of uh, documents, letting him know that as far as the FBI was concerned, that that thing was a fake, and that if he ever turned around and tried to sell it as a real Monet, we. Would we would come after him. Oh, no, I'm going to keep it in the basement. This is going to be a great story for me and my grandchildren and that stuff. And I'm going, okay, whatever. You know, as far as we were concerned, it was valueless. But, you know, in his mind, he thought it was a historical piece of, you know, artwork, I guess. I don't know. But at some point, he was fired. and uh, Right. At, after, shortly after he got his Monet, uh, Mount fired him and became his own attorney. And, of course, Mount knew everything about being a defense attorney because he had been at the trial in Boston where he had learned everything that he needed, needed well, to know. I think, I think you're you know, on the right track with that. <laughs> but uh, it was hilarious, uh, you know, and I always enjoyed testifying in any court. I just loved it because I thought this is when, you know, I have my chance to, you know, tell my side of the story. And it's very few, very rare that an FBI agent can just absolutely say whatever, you know, whatever the truth is. And it, testifying in that case, it was probably one of the highlights of my career because he was cross-examining me. And it was hilarious, Jerry. I mean, <laughs> I'm sitting there looking at my inventory of all the items that I had, and he starts trying to make me screw up on, you know, a particular document. That I, and I just looked at the inventory, and I said, no, this is that document. And he would say something outrageous, and I'd say, no, you're wrong. This is document number, you know. And we were going back and forth like that until the judge just said, no, we're not going to have this fight anymore. <laughs> Mr. Mount, move on. <laughs> well, one was, of the things, I have a number of articles that uh, you provided to me about this case from the uh, Washington Post and uh, the New York Times. And one of the things that they say about him was that, like you said, he was from Brooklyn, but that he spoke with a crisp British accent. What was that about? 
Well, in the, I want to say it would have probably been after he had gone through all of his problems, uh, you know, with losing his artistic ability, and you know, that's even a sort of questionable area. But, but I know that he had some kind of illness that led him to that. He decided to leave the United States and go live in Ireland, and he changed his name from uh, Sherman Suchow, primarily because he hated his mother. Okay, going back to that whole incident with his mother, and became Charles Merrill Mount, an Irish country gentleman. And he spoke, of course, with some kind of half Irish, half British accent. It was kind of hard to determine what it was, but it was very, you know, polished and 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 unusual accent. So that was that was his thing. He decided to remake himself as this person, Charles Merrill Mount, in the sixties. And so, so just so you know. I mean, if you're ever, like, really mad at yourself in your life, you can apparently go to Ireland and just change over to, to somebody new. <laughs> I, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you ever need need that advice. Uh, okay. I'm, hey, Jerry, I'm sorry to laugh, but every time I think about Mount, I just got to laugh. It was, it was an interesting case with a lot of craziness in it, and... Uh, I mean, you know, the the final thing when he sued me for, uh, I think it was $10 million, his last lawsuit against me, um, eight or 10, whatever it was, I think we were buying a house at the time, or, or no, refinancing a house. And so I had to explain to the, to the people that were refinancing my house who I was being sued by and why. And it just so happened that the lady who was the, the loan officer at the time, her her dad was a, um, a secret service agent, and so she sort of understood and said, "No, this is not going to interfere with your, with your, because uh, uh, normally a lawsuit like that would interfere with yeah. your ability to, to 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 get a loan." Yeah, I, as a person who worked uh, these type of matters most of my career, I have been sued also for multi million dollars, and thank God for the. United States Attorney's Office, who the civil side will take care of all of that, and uh, you don't have to really worry about, uh, you know, the, the matter after you know, you've been served. But you know, it is a shock to know yeah. that you're being sued by a con man for, you know, multi multi millions of dollars. Yeah. Oh, especially making, about- especially m- making what we were making back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Hey, talking about millions of dollars, um, you know, you were saying initially that his mother was wealthy. Is that why he was stealing these documents? Because he had, you know, separated, had had been estranged from his mother, and he needed money. Was he doing it because he needed money? Or in other instances where we've heard about art crimes, that was he doing it because he had a love of these historical documents? Which one was it? I wasn't. No, there. I I think it was because he needed money. But by this point, he had actually been married twice during his time in Ireland, and then later he had like eight or nine kids, maybe seven kids. So, uh, but he of course owed them nothing. They hardly even knew him. I ended up having to give his daughter all of his artwork back. Uh, after he died, because he died in '96 of a heart attack, I think, um, when he moved back to D.C., he he'd been out of jail for like a year or so, and then he died of a heart attack. Um, but uh, that's when I found out a little bit more about his personal life, and it, he was just really, you know, uh, 
always living sort of, uh, uh, you know, theft to theft kind of thing. In other words, if he could get away with, you know, uh, scamming a, a hotel room out of a hotel, he would do that. Uh, I think what he was hoping for with all these documents is that he was going to have this big chunk of money that he could live sort of the, the you know, uh, high life that he wanted to live. He felt that he deserved. Uh, so it was, it was, it was greed theft more than anything else. He wasn't, you know, uh, interested in anything other than making life easy for himself. I mean, the places that he lived on Capitol Hill were obviously very modest. I mean, but they were on Capitol Hill. So there was a certain, you know, uh, uh, you know, style to where he lived. But on the other hand, they were one bedroom efficiency apartments of some sort. So he, you know, I don't know what he was paying for them or even how he was paying for them because I never knew the man to work. Uh, but he, he was a talented guy and he could have probably gotten work doing a lot of different things if he would have tried to be legitimate. But legitimacy never occurred to him. I mean, he was constantly conning people and constantly, you know, working sort of the, uh, the criminal ecosystem to be able to get what he wanted out of life. But no, I think he was just a, a, a greedy thief, at, to be honest. As harsh as that sounds, I mean, um, he was never uh, unpleasant to a lot of people that knew him. And some people liked him and thought of him as being kind of a, a quirky guy. But the only conversations that I ever had with him, he was just a pretty despicable person. You know, who who couldn't you know uh, couldn't be bothered taking care of people that cared about him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be my read of him if if that's appropriate. Uh, yeah, and just from what you're saying, I mean, one of the things about a con man is to be deceptive about who they are, and it sounds like he conned himself into believing that he was somebody different than who he was. Oh, yeah. I, I remember one time when I called him Sherman Suchow, he almost went off at me. He's like yelling, well, you came to call me that. There's no, uh, you know, I'm legally, you know, Charles Merrill. I'm like, I can call you anything I want, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> but he was so angry about his family. During the course of my investigation somewhere along the line, I got a phone call from his mother's attorney. And he tried to explain to me all the ins and outs and intricacies of the relationship, but frankly, none of it made any sense to me. I mean, it was just all about anger and frustration, and, you know, he wasn't treated right at home at some point. I don't know what it was. And and, and at some point he got, I guess she cut him off financially, uh, and he felt like that was terrible of her. You know, so it was one of those, you know, internal family squabbles that, you know, are probably outsiders are never really going to fully appreciate or understand. But uh, uh, the mother, by the time I was doing my investigation, I think she had passed away, uh, or she was very, you know, very senior. Um, so the doc or the lawyer was the only one that had any contact with me, and he really didn't have much to say one way or the other. Couldn't help me in my case, so I, you know, just sort of background information got from him. You know, for all of the reasons, I mean, it was the very first time that anybody ever uh, uh, painted my picture while I was on the stand testifying. <laughs> oh, one of those. Uh, yeah, one of those. Yeah, you know, one of those courtroom uh, caricatures. 
Yeah, and do you I still asked, have it? I, no, I asked the guy if I could get it, and he said five hundred dollars. I said, no, you're talking to the wrong. <laughs> you're talking to the wrong person. You could keep it. <laughs> he didn't, you know that how he had no idea how cheap agents could be. Exactly. Oh, that's a shame because I know in Philadelphia, uh, the artists that you know who who do that work frequently sold it to you know the agents and. Yeah. Well, I mean. Um, he t- when he told me five hundred, I just laughed at him. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, yeah, several prosecutors had those things hanging in their offices when they had you know been painted like that. Uh, you know that I knew. I very few agents in my course where I worked. We, we didn't get on that kind of TV very much. In other words, our cases never really rose to that level that often. So. I have a couple of questions. First of all, did the did the National Archives ever do an inventory of everything that was missing? Did they were you able to figure out of those things what he took and was everything returned? Well, that was the the greatest thing about Mike Music is he was a very detail oriented guy, and he had hadn't identified each individual letter or document, but he knew. Um, it, I don't know if you if you're familiar with how documents are kept in archives, but there are these acid-free boxes that that they put handwritten old old documents in, and it, it they're huge. But he knew every box that Mount had taken documents from, and when we recovered what we recovered, he was able to to put everything back. But it took I think it took a year. So it was actually a year after we recovered all the items and were able to release them to the archives that uh, they were able to sort of, you know, reconstruct everything and put it back. My recollection was all of it was returned intact. This Boston store was the first place, first place that he, that he had, Yeah, we, we had other information that he tried to sell some of the stuff out of the Library of Congress to some of the local manuscript dealers. And that's possible. I don't really recall uh, us getting anything from any local manuscript dealers, but we heard that he did. But the the Library of Congress stuff was a little bit more troubling. They had very little um, uh, administrative control over things at that time. Uh, the the boss of the Library of Congress at the time was a guy named David Wigdor, really terrific guy, and he instituted you know some significant changes after Mount to make sure that they had proper inventories, you know, done. So I think all of it led to some changes. Um, the thing that sort of blew both of them away, both the archives and the Library of Congress people, was that almost every researcher just wouldn't have anything to do with the original documents. They wanted copies. They wanted to see stuff on microfiche. They never really wanted to do their research using the original documents. So they knew, so music, for his part, knew that there was something suspicious about Mount, but he couldn't, like, turn the guy down. It was like his job, you know, to help researchers. So, you know, he's thinking, I help legitimate researchers all the time. I guess i got to treat this guy the same way. But he, like, really kind of made notes of every time Mount came in. And Mount was pretty, you know, uh, slippery about getting the property into his uh, uh, vest that he always wore. He always wore a nice, you know, three-piece suit with a vest. And so he would stick his documents in inside the vest, and of course nobody noticed when he would take when he would walk out. 
the archives had a better inventory process, but uh, neither one of them were very, because they just didn't expect people to want the original material. And if they did, it was usually maybe let me see one document. You know, I don't need to see anything, you know. Because a lot of the stuff that he ended up stealing were basically orders to, you know, military units signed by Abraham Lincoln. And some of them were originals, and some of them were, uh, I don't know how, fa- how familiar you are with how our government operated in, in the 1860s, but the way it worked. Well, I, is, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> This is this is stupid stuff I learned when I was doing this. That was one of the other things interesting about the case. I learned a lot from this investigation. Yeah. But what it came down to was that if uh, General uh, uh, George Meade wanted to send some orders to U.S. Grant, he would dictate it to uh, a clerk in his office. That clerk would then have to write, actually handwrite out four copies of it. You know, there was no such thing as carbon copies or, you know, Xerox or anything like that back in the 1860s. So maybe on the third copy or after the the original, uh, Meade might sign the original, but then two or three copies later, it was the clerk that had signed George Meade, George Meade. So that became sort of, you know, part of the whole process. Did we have the original George Meade signatures? Did we have the original U.S. Grant signatures? We had an incredible letter from Abraham. I mean, from uh, from uh, uh, Robert E. Lee. Uh, you know, basically admitting that the war was over, maybe two months prior to uh, Appomattox. So it was like a you know historically significant letter. But uh, one in uh, one expert in the area didn't think it was Lee's signature, but you know, two or three others said it was. So, you know, it was it was that kind of material that you, you know, if we sat there and beat it up and in, individually had to prove it, we might have had a problem. But but you could tell, for example, the original Abraham Lincoln signatures and the original George Meade signatures because they were a little rougher looking. And they almost had, you know, I mean, you could tell from that it was sort of, you know, dashed off as opposed to some clerk who would sit there very carefully and try to reconstruct that, that signature. So... That was just one of the the silly problems that was part of the whole thing. Did we have an original, or did we have you know the second or third generation of orders, you know, telling uh, U.S. Grant to to destroy Petersburg, or you know that kind of thing? So what I'm trying to figure out what difference does it make? As it may make a difference as far as value, but it still was property and did not belong to him that was stolen. Right, and 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 ultimately, that's what it came down to, is by charging theft of government property, we didn't have to prove value as such. We had to prove that it was valuable to the government, okay? And that's what Mike Music and Professor Simon's testimony gave us. It gave us that that in, intrinsic value of the fact that it was the records of these particular important battles and and skirmishes during the Civil War. It was our only record of that, if you know what I'm saying. So that gave it value to the government. Uh, but up in, in Boston, they actually had to prove some kind of, I don't know, it might I may be using the wrong words. There's extrinsic and intrinsic value. Intrinsic value, I guess, would be if it was valuable for money. Th- those were the differences that we sort of ran into. I had run into that a lot in investigations that I worked, uh, interstate transportation, stolen property cases. But as far as 
theft of government property, it wasn't all that significant. I didn't have to come up with with uh, monetary values on these items. But somebody gave gave me an estimate at one point that it was probably four and a half million for all the documents that we had. But so obviously he was found guilty. How much time did he get? Now I know this was back in the 1980s, in the late 1980s. How much time did he get for that? He actually served eight years. Oh, that's significant. Yeah, and and that's what everybody said. But see, we convicted him or, uh, in Boston. I think they convicted him and gave him four years up there, and Judge Robinson gave him another four five years down here. He may have even gone higher than that. And then there, back in those days, there was parole. So I think he he actually served eight years. Yeah, and that's I, when he got out and sued you. For that's when years. he got out and sued me. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, I, this is a, this is a great case to review. It's uh, had so many fascinating aspects to it. Uh, you know, it just, he he definitely was an interesting subject for you. Yeah, um, it, like I said, it, you know, he he was uh, in the traditional sense uh, a con man, but on the other hand, his I mean, when you're an FBI agent and, you know, I, I mean, I had, uh, at this point, I had a master's in, in uh, English lit and Shakespeare, but, I mean, all of this stuff was new to me. Uh, you know, I mean, I've always been kind of a history buff and, and originally fascinated with the Civil War, but getting into this kind of detail and understanding this kind of information, to me, just was exciting and interesting to do. But at the same time, I had three other undercover operations going, so I had to... I had to really be careful about my timing. So well, I would imagine so. Just wanted to acknowledge the great work that was done by um, my partner at the time, who was Detective Hugh Triggs from the D.C. Police Department, and obviously the prosecutor in in the the trial here in D.C. Scott Fredrickson. Scott was uh, particularly uh, important in, in terms of dealing with Mount being his own attorney. Scott had to sort of hold back on being a, a legal expert in order not to make Mount look too bad in the court. I just want to make sure that your listeners know about those two guys. Well, the the last episode, of course, I keep promoting episode 77 because <laughs> I just think it's fascinating. But we had a chance to really talk about why you became an FBI agent and, you know, how that all evolved. So we won't go over that again. But I do want to, you know, take the opportunity to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of summing up your, your, your career for those who don't go back and listen to 77. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if we could just, uh, what i like to do is to give everybody the last word. And so um, keeping in mind what you've already talked about in episode 77, do you have any things that you wish you had mentioned back then that you'd like to kind of talk to everyone about this time? Well, the only thing I can sort of reiterate a little bit about is is I got my start in the FBI in the laboratory and uh, used that that uh, experience to help me a great deal when I became a, uh, a special agent and uh, criminal investigator. And being a criminal investigator to me was like the best job ever because I always had the opportunity to to meet some people at a time when it was kind of difficult for them. You know, and that's, I'm talking about the victims, crime victims, and, and people who witnessed certain things that, you know, just were disturbing or that were upsetting. Like, it, the Mount case was not that serious, frankly. But it was serious in the sense that somebody just 
you know, politely walked in and tried to steal American history. And so as an FBI agent, that's kind of what, you know, floats our boat, I think, is when we get into something that has is is serious for, you know, reasons that we don't even really understand at the time. You know, later on, when I started working mostly violent crime cases uh, at the end of my career working gangs, it all came down to, you know, whether I was properly prepared to do the job. And I felt like I was, and I felt like the people that worked with me throughout all those years, the cops and the agents, uh, were just the best. And I think I've said that before, but but it really is true. It, it gave me a sense of purpose every day to go to work. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm now teaching college uh, at George Mason University, and I'm doing the best I can to sort of transfer that passion to, you know, some young students. And I'm hoping that they get it. But, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, saying stuff that's flying over their head. And, you know, if you care about what you do and if you care about the people that are victimized by criminals and try to get some sense of justice for them, then there's almost no other job in the world that's, you know, as satisfying. And so it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting what you're doing here in, in terms of giving getting old timers like myself the opportunity to, to, you know, to discuss and talk about old cases, uh, because if nothing else, I'd like the people who are interested in this sort of thing and the, the American people in general to feel that that the FBI really is uh, exactly what we pretend to be, that we care about, you know, helping helping out our communities and that we care about helping out our country and and living, you know, helping the country live by the rule of law. I mean, right now it's, you know, there's some shots that are being taken uh, at the FBI, and I don't, you know, want to get into that. But, you know, m- most of the people that I've met in my career cared enough about, you know, doing the work and cared enough about the people uh, that they serve that it means everything. And all this nonsense uh, about the political aspects of it and all that kind of stuff, it's just that. It's just noise. I don't know the details of what's going on in today's, you know, modern FBI, but I I do know that the people that I grew up with and went through my career with, they were the greatest people I could work with. And I also know that all the cops that I work with at the D.C. police and all the surrounding jurisdictions were, you know, just terrific people who cared about their communities. It's difficult for me uh, at times to, you know, be open and honest about my, you know, my work. But, you know, one of the things that's always been helpful to me is my family always supported me. Throughout all of the craziness, throughout the crazy hours and the difficult times when when uh, things weren't going perfect, I had that family, you know, as my, you know, resource, as my number one resource. So, I mean, you know, over and over and over again, I, I keep getting reminded of how, uh, how cool it was to be an FBI agent. But also, uh, I remember how great it was to help people. And that's what, you know, that's what we did. That's what I think we still do. And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Dan, a photo of Charles Merrill Mount, and newspaper articles about this case. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll share the episode with your friends, family, and associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review so that every Thursday morning, an episode will appear magically on your device. Now, I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week, but I did want to tell you a little bit more about the second book 
in my FBI crime series. The first book was Pay to Play, as you know, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. The second book, which will be released on June 28th, is called Greedy Givers. Here's the premise. Special Agent Carrie Wheeler refuses to accept the hero label. Even after receiving the FBI and the City of Philadelphia's Medal of Bravery, she just wants to get back to work. Her new case has her investigating Cuthbert Cuddy Mullins, a self-described do-gooder who says that he is changing the world for the glory of God. He's accused of running the largest charity Ponzi scheme in the country. As he attempts to convince everyone, wealthy philanthropists, donors, nonprofits, and even himself, that it's all a big misunderstanding. Carrie knows that she and Cuddy have something in common. They are both living a lie. He claims God gave him the gift to read troubled souls. She hopes he can't read hers. Greedy Givers will be published on Amazon.com as an ebook and trade paperback on June 28th. I don't do Patreon. I don't do ads on this podcast. So I do hope that you'll support the show by picking up a copy of Pay to Play, which is available as an ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook, and Greedy Givers when it's released. If you're interested in helping me launch Greedy Givers, I need to hear from you by May 21st so I can add you to my advanced reader team. As a member of my advanced reader team, you'll get a free copy of the Greedy Givers ebook in exchange for an honest review when Greedy Givers is released on Amazon.com. You'll find more information about joining my advanced reader team in my May reader team email. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.